We don't start Trek on Deep Space Nine. We sit on our ass on Deep Space Nine. We ogle Jadzia on Deep Space Nine. We don't start Trek on Deep Space Nine. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. to battle stations, engage. Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf, reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Leyland. Hello everybody and welcome back to Listen to the Prophets, a Star Trek Monthly Monday Two True Freaks internet radio show. Today is a very special episode of the show for reasons we shall come to shortly, but before all of that I am, as usual, Andrew Leyland and I'm joined as ever by the major Kira to my Captain Cisco, Mr. Sean Engel. How's it going today, Andy? It's, it's tickety-boo. I'll be honest, I don't think you're near pretty enough to be Kira. Well, uh, I do have a, uh, I do have very uh, supple breast, which is kind of disturbing in one way or another. But uh, <laughs> for comparing me to the to the major, I do appreciate that. That's okay. Uh, last month we reached a, a turning point in the history of the series when we learned that the changelings have infiltrated Starfleet and possibly beyond. In the third season finale, The Adversary, which we hope you enjoyed. We haven't received any feedback yet, you bastard. So you want to get on top of that? Exactly. It's still at it's still Star Trek Monthly Monday at two truefreaks.com or Star- I know, yeah. It's yeah. just because just we're the, the B listers don't mean we don't like getting feedback. Exactly. Also in the adversary, Commander Cisco finally became captain, mm-hmm. receiving his long overdue promotion, which we talked at length about. Getting into the fourth season, the show's producers decide that they were going to shake the show up a bit at the behest of Paramount. And taking the cue, Sean and I have decided to do exactly the same thing. What this show needed, we thought, was our very own Mr. Worf. And between the two of us, there was only one name 
that came to mind. And even more fortunately, that one name actually agreed to become a regular on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, well, like ladies, listen, our very own son of Moog, Mr. Paul Spataro. Hey, great to be here with you guys. Thank awesome. you so much for inviting me on. It's oh, all right. Thank you for agreeing to become a regular. How's your it is a good day to die impression? <clears throat> Perhaps today is a good day to die. Warfire Brooklyn. <laughs> okay, that's excellent. Well, no, you were the only person on the list when we well, had. Wasn't wasn't, to... uh, wasn't Wolf raised by a Jewish family on Earth? He was. That's true. So, so perhaps it wasn't Brooklyn. <laughs> we don't. We don't know. We don't know what city he was raised in. You know, you He's Russian, isn't he? Well, it's, it's Roshenko, so yeah, it's, it's a Russian family, but trust me, there are plenty of Russian families in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so it was a very authentic accent, then. There you go. All right. One thing we do ask everyone who comes on the show, Mr. Mr. Spataro. I said Pataro? <laughs> Mr. Spataro, DS9 or Babylon 5? Uh, well, I love DS9, and I've never watched Babylon 5, so I think that's a real easy choice. <laughs> So you're not one of those people who's, oh, well, Babylon 5 did this better, and Deep Space Nine did this better. Very easy choice for you, then. Yes, I've heard a lot of good things about Babylon 5. I'm not not ranking on it in any way, but I've just never watched it. Babylon 5 was, was great for its first four seasons, and the final season was utter tripe, but we've, we've waffled on about that before. You know, I, the way I've always seen Babylon 5 differing from Deep Space Nine is... And this is well, a friend of mine used to say about this. Babylon 5 is what's hap- would be what happened if the future was populated by the Republicans. And Deep Space Nine is what would happen if the future was populated by the Democrats. There's a, there's a more... <laughs> and I hate, I hate to keep getting political on the show. I, I, I feel like I do this every time that we get someone on and you know, talk about this. But that's the way the two are. The, in Babylon 5, it's cutthroat. It's... It's mean. It's 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 self-centered. It's uh, it's it's you know for yourself, and in Deep Space Nine, it's all for the good of the the good of the universe, the good of the Federation. It's very touchy-feely and all that. So yeah, there's the difference there. So you take, I, I, take that what you will. And Deep Space Nine is the most political of the Star Trek shows. Oh, definitely. So it's not unfair to to bring your politics into it on occasion. Mm-hmm. I do have to keep beating you down a bit. Well, uh, you know, I, I tend to run my mouth off. At times. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we're going straight into Season 4. At the time of Season 4, Deep Space Nine was judged as, as not being as successful as The Next Generation or Voyager. The Next Generation had uh, just a couple of years before come to a close with a, a spectacular finale that uh, rated exceptionally highly. The year before this episode erred, the movie Star Trek Generations came out, giving the, the Next Generation's profile an even bigger boost. Voyager had launched to a big blitz of publicity from Paramount in January of, of 1995. Deep Space Nine was felt in some way to be lagging, to be not as successful, to be not as, as popular. I think, with the benefit of 20 years' worth of hindsight, Deep Space Nine has actually aged better than Next Gen or, or Voyager. What, what do you two think? Oh, definitely. I think I think it's it's also credit to the writing staff that we've got, and we know 
how you uh, have spoken on many times on the show, how you love uh, Ronald D. Moore and his run uh, on Battlestar Galactica, the new one. He cut his teeth here, and you get a lot of uh, things that would be uh, propagated later on in Battlestar Galactica here, like, you know, Section 31, the Obsidian Order, the sort of cutthroat dealings with uh, sort of under-the-radar type stuff that's going on. And I think Ronald Moore's writing on Deep Space Nine is what made this show stand out from the other shows. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, what you're saying about the distinction on this show is true. And, and it basically, I, I had it as one of my notes for the episode, but, uh, for the episode that we're going to discuss. But uh, it really does go off of the Gene Roddenberry blueprint. It, it, it takes that and it, it skews it a totally different way, which a lot of people use as the criticism of the show. But then, you know, people are never happy. So they criticize it for that. But then they'll also criticize if it's too much to form and, and, you know that it, that it doesn't break new ground. I think the fact that this show did break new ground is one of its real great things. Uh, and and for me personally, with every Trek series, with the exception of the original series, uh, I was inventing binge viewing, uh, and and didn't watch them all live as they went on, but instead went to it after the fact and and started at the beginning and then worked my way up to whatever point they were at. DS9 I think was in season five when I really discovered it, and I watched the first four and a half seasons in a binge manner and the show really does play well as far as the continuing narrative that it goes uh, with along the way it starts off just like a traditional trek series for the first couple of seasons but starting with the season that we're getting into now that's when it went into that real strong continuing narrative and and i think that made it very unique in a lot of ways yeah, well, we've, we've discussed this before. I think Deep Space Nine was often a better science fiction series than it was a Star Trek series. But of all the shows subsequent to the original Trek, it's the one that produced the episodes that were most hearkening back to the original Star Trek. I mean, shows we've not got to yet, like um, Journey Beyond the Stars, where Ben Sisko is the, the writer in the mm-hmm. uh, 1930s and uh, Children of Time all these shows that we've not got to yet are some of the best Star Trek episodes ever and the fact that they appeared in the series that is considered to be the least Star Trek like is an irony that I, I find fascinating about this show but yeah you're right Paul it is the one of all of them it's the one that feels most at home in today's television climate of binge watching or DVD or Netflix or whatever I, I can't do that with, with Vo- I mean I don't like Voyager much anyway but Voyager's is very episodic and you watch more than two or three in a row and you're like oh, oh yeah I'll, I need a break now but yeah Deep Space yeah. Nine you can just blitz through it yeah, do, do, uh, Voyager. I don't dislike Voyager, but I just don't think it lives. Up. It's at the level of the other shows. I think all three of the other spin-offs are superior to Voyager. I think in a lot of cases it rests and falls on the captain, and I just don't like Catherine Janeway, and didn't like her from day one, and she never grew on me in the way that Picard did. I mean, I, I like I, Ben Cisco from the beginning. I, I go beyond that even with Voyager. I, I, I feel even the supporting cast is it's decent, but it. It doesn't really have... Until they got Seven of Nine, it didn't even have really a standout character at all. Yeah, no, I agree with that. The only one I liked in the early days was Robert Picardo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people point to uh, Tuvok, but I kind of felt he was not played to be all that interesting. To be No, I don't think he got a lot to do. I don't think it was a reflection on the actor. Yeah. Well, and I don't think they knew what they they wanted to do with an all-Vulcan character 
You know, the only Vulcan character that we had prior to this was Spock, and he was half Vulcan. We never really had a true, full Vulcan character, and I don't think they explored how that character should have been in the show. So that was kind of problematic with Voyager. Yeah, I mean, they did a little bit with him playing off of uh, Neelix and the relationship that the two of them had, and and they would show it by comparison. Uh, But I guess we could save this off when we start a Voyager podcast. (laughs) You two can do that on your own. Yeah, because... <laughs> that may be, Mr. Worf. That may be your uh, your job because uh, yeah, I I freaking hate Neelix. Uh, <laughs> That's the title of the show, though. I freaking hate Neelix. That will be yeah, a Voyager <laughs> podcast. I was gonna think that he and he and Odo were on Benson together, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I never thought about that. Uh, right, well, there's a, there's a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff on this one that's quite interesting to discuss. We'll get into that before we discuss the episode itself. We alluded to it a little bit last time, but we wanted to save it for here. The addition of Mr. Worf to the series came at the behest of Paramount, but they didn't actually say, add Worf to the show. It's a popular misconception that Paramount came in and said, add a Next Generation cast member. Ira Stephen Burr, who was at this point the showrunner, on Deep Space Nine after Michael Piller had gone off to do Voyager and Rick Berman had just kind of washed his hand of the whole thing because he wasn't interested in the serialized nature of the show. Basically, he came up with the idea of let's reintroduce the Klingons as a potential threat and if we do that then, let's bring Worf onto the show. Michael Dorn apparently was a little bit reticent to don the makeup again for another number of years but presumably the hefty salary he allegedly received may have gone some way to assuaging his fears but also apparently had written into the contract that if he wasn't important then he didn't have to show up for work one of his stipulations was on next gen he had to be on the bridge whether he had nothing to do and that's like it was like a three or four hour makeup job for him to just be stood there doing nothing saying hailing frequencies open so that's something he had when Burr came up with the idea of bringing the Klingons in him and Berman went to Paramount and, and suggested it and apparently they had no arguments Paramount were like okay we asked you to shake it up do what you're doing it did lead to the end of season three being substantially reworked the third season was supposed to end with the two-part season finale that would comprise the episodes Homefront and Paradise Lost, which we obviously haven't got to yet because they got shunted back into the middle of season four. And the season three finale was restructured to introduce the new plans for the fourth season. Do you think that adding Wolf benefited the series? I you don't know. know. I'm sorry, Sean. No, go you? ahead, Paul. I, I don't know... It's, it's very hard to put your finger on it because, like I said, I do think the show took off at this point. I think this is when the episodes really started to get almost to the cliffhanger method where, you know, you, you really look forward to seeing the next episode as soon as one ended. But I'm, it's hard to put my finger on exactly the cause of that, whether it was Worf, who I certainly think added to the series, or if it was the addition of the Defiant and how they were using that, or, or if it was just the storyline that they got into. I think there's a lot of stuff that happened in the episode we're covering today that really did start things rolling, start the ball rolling and make the show more compelling. So it's hard to exactly put my finger on it, although Worf commonly gets credit for it. Yeah, there's a lot of people in this episode I'd completely forgotten, hadn't appeared before this point, that go on to become major parts of the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with Paul. It's not necessarily worth coming onto the show that made Deep Space Nine 
you know, quote unquote better. I think it was the combination of them getting the Defiant and being able to leave the station a bit more in a ship that's a bit more powerful than a runabout. I think it's the addition of the Klingon characters of Gowron and Martok to there. I think it's the expansion of the secondary characters, especially Garrick. I think putting Garrick and, you know, and giving him a much bigger role throughout the series and, you know, giving him things to do has definitely increased the popularity of the show. So it's, it's not just Worf coming on. They, they just hit their stride here. And there were a, a numerous things that came together to make the show so much better at this point in time. Okay. All right. Should we get straight into the synopsis and then talk about the show generally? That's yeah. Cause we're good. running through my notes on the show by talking about it beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Once they were savage warriors born to conquer until they found peace. Now, they've returned to the old ways. The Klingons are back, and one gallant warrior must stand with them or against them. Starfleet's boldest hero, Worf, faces his ultimate test. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine... Uh, the Way of the Warrior was written by Iris Stephen Burr and Robert Hewitt Wolfe, directed by James L. Conway, and originally aired around the 2nd October 1995 as a two-hour episode. I stole the synopsis from TVRage.com and then rewrote bits of it because it was a bit crap. All Federation crew aboard Deep Space Nine begin to train for a possible infiltration by the Changelings after the startling conclusion to last season. Unfortunately, the DS9 staff is woefully unprepared as they have a hard time just tracking down Odo. As Captain Sisko spends some time with Cassidy Yates, an enormous contingent of Klingons arrive in the Birds of Prey to prepare themselves for the possibility of the Dominion coming through the wormhole. The Klingons are even more aggressive than usual, picking a fight with Morn and beating Garrick, and a Klingon warbird even captures Cassidy Yates' freighter. In the Defiant, Sisko forces the Klingons to back down, and General Martok, the Klingon commander, has the commander of that shuttlecraft executed. Unable to comprehend the Klingon rationale, Sisko orders Lieutenant Commander Worf to be temporarily reassigned to Deep Space Nine in an order to find out why the Klingons have massed this fleet of warships at the station. Worf does find out that the Klingons are planning to attack Cardassia to stop what they feel is a Dominion-led coup. Captain Sisko warns General Martok that the unprovoked attack could lead to the breakdown of the treaty between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. However, Martok chooses to ignore Sisko's ultimatum and sends his fleet towards Cardassian space. This forces a truce between Starfleet and Cardassia as Sisko offers to aid Dukat against the Klingons, potentially destroying over two decades of peace. He tells Martok and Gowron, the Klingon Chancellor, that the Cardassians are not changelings, but Gowron is having none of it and attacks. Deep Space Nine is forced to open fire and as the battle heats up, Sisko tells Gowron that this war between them is exactly what the Founders want and that the Klingon Empire may well be brought to its knees in such a battle. Gowron stands down, warning Sisko and Worf that he will not forget what happened this day. With hostilities with the Klingons now reopened, plus the ever-present change in Clet, Worf decides to remain on Deep Space Nine. Excellent synopsis, sir. Excellent. Yeah, that pretty much covers it all. So Thank we'll you see much. you all next month. Nice <laughs> <laughs> short episode for us. Uh, the opening episode... The opening... In scenes, sorry, 
follow straight on from last week. We now have a shaved-headed Commander Cisco. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I was going to comment on. Uh, you know, I, I think that's another thing that sort of cemented uh, this season or the rest of the series that Cisco went the full hawk. You know, from <laughs> Spencer for hire, <laughs> he, he finally went all the way. You know hawk doing this so i think that's one of the things that sort of defined the character of cisco it made him i didn't mind his look earlier i liked you know when he got the goatee but when he went the full hawk i thought yeah now he's ready to be a badass and kick some ass so that's that's one of the things i definitely liked about the beginning of this episode i I always thought that cisco had more in common with kirk than he did with picard Mm -hmm. uh and and i think that the badass look really adds to that a little bit Uh, i i I always think of the q episode the one ds9 q episode where uh where he punches q and then q looks at him and says picard never did that and and you know it's Cisco just didn't put up with crap the way that uh, Picard might. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and there's a very clear line of dialogue in that episode, I'm not Picard, where the writers were clearly defining that, no, Cisco isn't. And even the shaving of his head to make him look a bit more Picard and giving him the goatee beard. And they even make a reference to it in this episode when later on we'll get to that scene, but Garrick is measuring him up for a suit. I think Avery Brooks has lost weight between seasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's that the uniform that he's wearing makes him look quite sleek, but with the shaven head and the goatee beard and the slightly leaner look, he does look like much more of a badass than he did in previous years. Mm-hmm. And he's going to need to be a badass because, you know, things are going to start ramping up. The Dominion, you know, is is definitely starting to show its hand in the uh, Alpha Quadrant. And, you know, things are things are getting you know, testy between, you know, the Klingons and the Federation. So it's things are ramping up. They need someone in the Federation, especially at this juncture point at the wormhole, to be a badass. Yes. I, I, I killed the conversation. <laughs> you know. No, no, what, what did you think of the, the opening teaser? Because I'm sure it must have been tempting for the producers to just bring Worf in straight away. But instead, they open up with this action beat where the entire fleet on Deep Space Nine of security guards are hunting one changeling and he runs rings around them which is essentially selling us the idea that a a group of changelings who can beat anything and beat any war would be a practically impossible enemy to fight again coming back to the faceless enemy part of it that gains more resonance now than it had when this episode originally aired I, I thought this was a really good teaser and there's no indication from the teaser that major changes are afoot other than Cisco's head, which apparently the producers had to go and have a meeting at Paramount about whether they were allowed to shave his head or not. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting. Now, see, I didn't have any problem with it. I thought it was a it was a good look. It it gave him a more defined look. It gave him more, like we said, a more badass look. But um, yeah, the the opening sequence with the the crew of the, the station trying to find Odo, you know, that was, you know, that, that sets up the idea that yes, the dominion are a credible threat and the founders are a credible that threat and they could be anywhere. And that's, that sort of sneaking feeling is one of the things that, you know, I think is sort of prescient in the world today. You know, we're kind of worried about the, the boogeyman who's, you know, you know, living next door. So uh, it, it's it's a credit to the show that they kind of captured that feel or captured that sort of idea of you know how our, our, our paranoia about this you know would would expand in this time period. So yeah, good. And and I'm gonna 
probably be a little bit hypocritical here because if somebody listens to the show of our sister series, uh, they're going to hear me espouse a slightly different opinion on this subject. But I like the fact that they put together the Dominion and the Changelings as a truly credible threat and that they didn't have to fall back on the Borg to be the, their enemy. They touched on it so that you know they're in the same universe. That's why the Defiant was created. It was actually a ship to fight the Borg. Uh, but they never went to the point where the Borg was the threat that DS9 was fighting. And I, and I kind of like that, that they kept to themselves. They had their own threat, and it was a truly credible threat. In fact, uh, as you said, Sean, the way you see that Odo performs in this particular exercise, you know that a group of them basically could have just come on the uh, station and had their way with it right from the start if, if that was the tact that they, that they had chosen. Which so, plays into the Klingons' paranoia that the Changelings have taken over Cardassia. I mean, throughout most of the episode, Cisco doesn't know that they're wrong, which is what makes his decision to stand up against the Klingons quite a daring move, and the fact that he seems to get the support of, of Starfleet and the Federation in doing that. In another way that Cisco was very like Kirk, he didn't run off to Starfleet every time he had a decision to make. He's out there on the frontier of Duke Space Nine on his own. Like Kirk, he makes his own decisions, and then he has to back them up later on. We don't know that Cardassia hasn't been taken over by the Changelings. They could very well have done. I was always very impressed that they managed to completely mimic everybody else's face, but not a human face. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's just sort of a way to, to give them this, a distinguishing look. You know, I'm certain, because we'll find out later, later on in the series, that they had a Changeling basically replicate a member of the crew mm. uh, for, a, for a good period of time. So... You know, it's just when they're in their their changeling form, when they've come out of the great pool or whatever you want to call it, you know that they have that sort of weird blank look to their faces. So I always but, felt a bit sorry for Rene Aubergeois. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makeup just must have been just awful to wear because oh. it's not it's not detailed like you'd see with you know wharves or you know Garricks or Goldicotts or even Quark. I mean, it's just. It's just like they layered on pancake makeup. It looks like they put it on with a trowel. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then just drew a couple of lines on his forehead, and that's about it. Just to, to touch on uh, something that you said, Andy, also, I think with Cisco, it's, it's one of the real nice things about the way this show is written, is the show started out with him not wanting to be at DS9. He, he was ready to... Uh, to give up his time in Starfleet and, and leave because of his wife passing and all. And I think throughout the show, without ever saying it, it's pretty clear that his loyalty really isn't necessarily to Starfleet so much as it is to just doing what's right. Uh, and ultimately, he becomes loyal to the Bajorans and the Founders, not the Founders, the, uh, the, the Wormhole Gods and all of that. But he never does it by shirking his duty, and I think it makes him a very, very layered character. Mm. Yeah, he, he does, because he, he kind of embraces, after initially rejecting it completely, his role as the prophet, which is ultimately where the series will go later on, because the Bajoran politics kind of take a back seat at this point to the Klingons and the Dominion, and I, I kind of think that was a wiser move. Um, I didn't dislike the, the Bajoran politics, but they were never my favorite episodes. Well, they, they needed to create a, a much grander scale conflict for television than just a, you know, let's discuss the politics between Bajor and, and Cardassia. Mm -hmm. And they did an excellent job. Martok makes his first appearance in the teaser. He will go on to be very important. 
Mm-hmm. He will be he will be a big part of the show. He'll he'll basically become a, pretty much an ally. You know, that near the end of or I think near the end of season five, he'll become a huge ally to the Federation. But right now, he's just you know starting out as kind of a paranoid, you know, typical Klingon. You know, going in there and cut your hand to make sure that you bleed. I'm going to make sure that you're not, you know, just very paranoid. But I, I, I love the way that we get his character introduced here. And I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get more of him because initially I thought he was just kind of, he, he wasn't fully fleshed out. And I like the fact that we get this entire couple of seasons to get the character fleshed out. Yeah. Lily is typical of, of deep space nine's idea of they don't just develop the regulars every character that they keep bringing back they add further layers to them like Martok here is just a standard Klingon mm-hmm. there's nothing different to him from Gowron or Koloth or Kor or any other number of other Klingons we've seen in, in the other shows but he deepens considerably as he goes along and eventually becoming a really good friend of Worf and like you say loyal to Sisko I think, I think ultimately though the only character beat that's missed is when he has the uh the captain killed for uh, standing down. I'm not sure that's consistent with Martok's character later. I think, I, I, I think they kind of play a little fast and loose on the whole honor thing in this episode, uh, and I think it's treated more seriously in the later episodes than it is in this one. They, they, they're a very difficult race, I think, to write because they do have this sense of honor, and yet they are also a violent race. So you have to go through the distinction of violence for honor's sake and, and violence for violence sake and and I think sometimes the writers do miss a beat on that yeah it did sometimes seem like Worf was the only honorable Klingon didn't it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I but think, I think uh, Martok becomes an honorable Klingon yeah, that's what they, they flesh him out as well and show that Worf isn't an anomaly and which yet I think is interesting less honorable as the series goes on well Gowron's a politician yes. which well, plays into the show's yeah, and it does, because it does play into the show's quite cynical viewpoint about politicians. None of the other Star Trek shows ever really went near that. I mean, Kirk's encounters with politicians never went well for him. They were always officious and, and rather mealy-mouthed. But on Deep Space Nine, they give it a bit more to play with. But they don't seem to have a very high opinion of them. Well, and that's yeah. one of the neat things about Deep Space Nine, again, as a show, is that it not only tackled the idea of politics, it heavily tackled the idea of religion. You know, it wasn't afraid to sort of poke the, you know, poke the cat, you know, and you know, sort of get things going, you know, to, to get some interesting stories done. Uh, they, uh, one of the things I, I don't think Next Generation did was I don't think they took as many risks as Deep Space Nine did. And that's why I think Deep Space Nine is a much better show than Next Generation. And, 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 and I think, do, I'm sorry. yeah, sorry, go on, Paul. I was just going to say, yeah. I think that's why Deep Space Nine has aged better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think they also they were willing to poke the cat, as you say, Sean, but never be dismissive of points of view. Uh, like with the religion thing, you have the people who just totally dismiss the prophets and and what they are and and the fact that people are worshiping them, and yet you see signs of their power as things go on and their omniscience, for lack of a better word, but they never really tell you are they just aliens are they gods what are they is, mm-hmm. is the religion right or is or, or are they foolish to be worshiping these entities uh they kind of leave that to you without it ever being a cop-out of leaving it to you mm-hmm. yeah i've been preachy or saying religion is bad or religion is good they let you decide 
And Kira is a very spiritual and religious character. Mm-hmm. Kira is a very multi-layered character as well, and that's one of the best things about the show. Is you could say that about almost every character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the opening credits has a new theme, kind of. Uh, By which I mean they put a drum beat behind it. Mm-hmm. Luckily, they didn't go to the guitar. Well, I can't remember when that starts. They get the guitar riff in there. I think that's a couple of seasons down the road. But that just uh, at least <laughs> it's at least it's not as bad as uh, certain future uh, themes to certain <laughs> Star Trek shows. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> at least there's no I, lyrics. <laughs> yes, you can't sing lyrics to the Deep Space Nine theme. Oh, you know what? We throw it out to Doctor Bill. He might come up with some. Oh, <laughs> Um, there was some criticism of the episode in that it was sexing up Kira and Jadzia, particularly the scene where they're in the, the bathhouse with the, the two masseuse. I thought it was quite a playful and a nice scene, and I thought Kira played it, or Nana Visitor played it, as being quite embarrassed that she was in a bikini in this place that isn't real. She's got no imagination. She's somebody who's grown up from very early on being a freedom fighter slash terrorist again depending on your point of view and Jadzi is quite at home in this environment and and Kira isn't what did you two think? Yeah I see I kind of don't like Kira being the stick in the mud you know I I wish she'd sort of get over the whole you know it's it's been I don't know how long it's been since the invasion of Cardassia has been over with I understand she had a horrible childhood but you know just every once in a while try and get out of your frumpiness get out of your grumpiness i mean she she's such an interesting character but sometimes when they bring her back to the whole well you know i fought my entire childhood life against the cardassians and that's all i know it just it it diminishes her character for me Uh, i don't know it so much diminishes her because i think if this is real the trauma that she went through would be something that you would carry with you Mm -hmm. all the time i think it's more as a viewer that it's just more enjoyable to watch her if she's not always angry. Okay. I could give you that, yeah. And she does mellow out a lot, considerably, as the series go on. Mm-hmm. I like the friendship between her and Jadzia. And I like the relationships between all the different characters. The relationship between Bashir and Chief O'Brien mm-hmm. is one of my favorite relationships in the show. Because those two really don't have much in common. They don't really have any reason to hang out with each other. But they become friends through hanging around in the bar and throwing darts. And yet, and yet you have Chief O'Brien, who was basically a throwaway character on uh, Next Generation, and, and, you know, becomes truly a part of the ensemble on this, on this show. Mm-hmm. I just like seeing Terry Farrell in a bikini. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I'm more of a Kira man. I oh. think Kira was incredibly sexy. You know, they're, they're both really attractive, but, you know, to each their own. I, I, don't, I don't deny that, that, that Kira was, yeah, she was nice as well. Yeah, if I had to pick, I think I'd probably go with Terry Farrell as well, but I just kind of picture myself in the holodeck with both of them. Uh, (laughs) Angela, my wife, just says I like short, feisty women. Okay, then. That may be just where my my liking of Kira comes from. Apparently, that's my type. Makes sense. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm at a loss. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Alexander Siddig is credited as Chief Dr. Bashir now instead of Siddig El-Fadil. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why he changed his name. Do you have any idea? I hate to say it. I think it was, you know, because his name had connotations to uh, Islamic, you know, or to to a Muslim-type feel, which is 
I'm, I, this may be apocryphal and it may not be true. I haven't, I didn't really read up on it, but that's kind of what I got. I think, you know, he felt that, you know, he couldn't get roles with a name that had a sort of Islamic feel to it. So he just changed it to Alexander Siddig. But the thing is, uh, if you look at his career uh, post uh, Deep Space Nine, a lot of his roles have been very Muslim oriented roles. He played a uh, Muslim, like a president of a Muslim country on 24. He's played, uh, uh, various different roles in movies that he's been uh, he's been a Muslim character. So I'm hoping that's not the case, but I, I think that's kind of what I heard, unfortunately. Right. I see. I had no idea why he changed his name. I'd, I'd, I was only watching it for this that I'd remembered that he wasn't Alexander Siddig. Ever. See, and you, you have to wonder that the Muslim roles that you're talking about, Sean, are those because he eventually embraced that, or are they because he wanted to get roles and had no choice? I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm hoping it's the case that he embraced it, that he realized that it's not, it's not a detriment to have that as as your character or have that as part of who you are, uh, rather than the fact that you know that was all he could get. I'm hoping that it was the former rather than the latter. Well, it's it, it's a testament to Deep Space Nine's casting against type as well. I mean, to a certain generation, and Andrew Andrew Garfield, he's Spider Man, isn't he? Um, Garrick, Andy Robinson is Dirty Harry, is Scorpius. Mm-hmm. And it's Scorpio. Scorpio, sorry, thank you. Scorpius One of my is favorite Farscape, movies of all time. <laughs> and mine as well, yeah. So to see him in this role, the slightly effete guy who, who takes your inside leg measurement, was a revelation <laughs> at the time I saw it. And it's one of those... Andy Robinson now looks back as Deep Space Nine, and he's one of those actors who appreciated it at the time as well, that he'd spent years after Dirty Harry either just playing psychos or doing thankless rules in the A-Team and stuff. And in Deep Space Nine, he got a rule he could really sink his teeth into. And again, it's another one of those, you forget he's only in one episode in season one. Mm Mm-hmm. And then his role just becomes substantially bigger and bigger as we go along. He's magnificent. Oh. He plays everything, particularly in this episode. He plays everything subtextually. He plays every single line of dialogue as if there is something deeper going on. Particularly the scene he has with Quart, where essentially yes. they're just talking about the Federation. And it ultimately being insidious. Mm-hmm. And the the way both of them play that scene, there's a subcurrent, an undercurrent there of subtext to every line and every gesture. And, and Andy Robinson is just so good with his eyes. He's got such big, expressive eyes, which must be useful in that Cardassian makeup. He is he's mag he, he may get most valuable player for me when Deep Space Nine is all over and we do our retrospective. I think he may end up being my favorite of the lot of them. Oh, I, I, I can't agree with you more, Andy. I mean, uh, he is by far, you know, it, I would personally like to see him get added to the the cast of characters, you know, rather than being, just being a guest star, because every moment that he's on the screen is just a joy to watch. And yeah, you're right. Everything he says, there is a subtext to it. I'm just a simple tailor. I'm going to make some alterations you know just the little things that he puts in there and the emphasis that he puts on the words and then the the looks that he gives just gives you this feeling that there is something more going on with him and we know yes he's with the obsidian order but it's never out and out stated to the the members of the crew and it's he's just a glorious glorious actor in the show this this really cemented him in my mind as a great character actor well we're we're all 
in agreement on that. I, I couldn't argue with anything that either of you have said. As far as how he's used in this particular episode, I found it fascinating uh, the way that they call him in to take the measurements and then they uh, you know, accidentally speak in front of him about what's <laughs> going on so that he'll go and tell Ducat. Uh, and you got to think, the way the role is written and the way Andy Robinson plays it, he knows exactly how what they're doing. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, I heard something I'm not supposed to say, but I'm going to say it. He heard it, and he said, they said that in front of me because they want me to go tell Dukat, mm-hmm. and let me go tell Dukat. Like, there's no point where he thinks he's uh, betraying them and, and that they're, uh, you know, that, that uh, somehow he's doing what they don't want. He knows exactly what they want because that's, he's, he's too sharp to ever be fooled by something as simple as that. And his, his relationship with Ducat in this episode is just beautiful. Mark Alamo essentially plays his straight man. And he does a good job of it. When they're in the fight at the end and um, Garrick says, who'd have ever thought we'd have been fighting side by side? And then he just turns around as he says it. So he's not pointing his gun at him anymore. But before that moment, he never takes his gun away from pointing it at Ducat. Mm-hmm. which I thought was a really nice little touch that yeah okay we're side by side on this but don't think for a second that I trust you yeah the the relationship between the two characters is just brilliantly played out in this and yeah Robinson just does a great job like you said emoting with his facial expressions with his eyes you know bring forth this sort of deceptive deceitful type character that you can't not love it's just he is one of my favorite characters on this show. And and the way, uh, Andy, the way you and I discussed on our uh, Planet of the Apes commentary, uh, there are certain aliens on this show, uh, the Cardassians, Odo, uh, and, and others come along and come and go, but uh, that the makeup is so heavy that it does require a little extra acting as far as their eyes go and everything because they're not going to be able to make the same facial expressions with all that makeup on that they could if if they were just makeup free so it, it really is a testament to their acting and you mentioned Mark Alamo I think he was great through this whole series I, I'm surprised that I really don't have any familiarity with him off of this show uh, Mark Alamo, if you watch television in the 70s and 80s, you saw Mark Alamo. He was a bad guy on everything Stephen J. Cannell ever made, on everything Glenn A. Larson ever made, at Rockford, going all the way back through the 60s. He was bad guy du jour on every single one of them. So, again, he's probably an actor who appreciates that Deep Space Nine, yes, he was the bad guy in speech marks, but he was a very layered bad guy. Yeah, he and, and they, they did, I mean, as I don't want to go too far into other things that go on as the show goes on, but they did things to make him a sympathetic character as it went on as well. And to, and to you know, as it's, it's become so cliche, but to, to show, uh, you know, the best villains are the ones that in their own mind are a hero. Yeah. And, and he certainly mm-hmm. is a hero in his own mind. Yeah, he never gives any concessions that uh, the Bajorans were right, does he? He never changes his stance on that particular yeah, The viewpoint. most he'll do is is concede that maybe at this point, maybe we went a little too far on this one thing. But, the you know, that was because the ends justify the means and we had to do it. Yeah. And that, that's as far as he'll ever go as, as far as conceding right and wrong. Uh, before we get to the big introduction of the episode, Cassidy Yates comes back. I'm always amazed because she's on Castle now. She's Captain uh, Gates on Castle. 
And I'm always amazed when we see Castle now how much of a hottie she was. I'm sorry if this is a bit sexist, piggery, lovely listeners, but the women in Deep Space Nine are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, uh, Cassidy was just, she was just beautiful, and you know it's it's nice to see the relationship between Cisco and Yates develop here, and we'll see it play out even more uh, with the you know things that happened uh, you know with the Mirror Universe episodes coming up soon. Yeah, and the whole the stuff with the Maquis. Mm-hmm. Oh, that yeah. will ultimately happen, and and all of that. I mean, is is Cisco? He's the only Star Trek captain to have a regular boy or girlfriend, isn't he? I'm thinking so. You know, Picard never had one. Uh, Archer. When they tried to do it with Picard, it was it was a oh. bitter failure. Mm-hmm. With well, Vash, because he's such a stuffy old fart. <laughs> But yeah, Janeway never did. Yeah, so yeah, Picard. Yeah, Janeway's I, I, boyfriend got killed in the first episode. Oh well. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's that is true. I forgot about that. Uh, so of course, I suppose we should address the big Klingon in the room. <laughs> Worf gets brought to Deep Space Nine. They do a nice job of bringing him up to speed continuity-wise without ladening the continuity on. We all we get he's been off on extended leave since the destruction of the Enterprise in Generations, and that's pretty much it. We get a Worf here who is at a crossroads in his career. He's, he's having a very crisis of conscience Worf in that should he even be in Starfleet anymore? He found his home on the Enterprise. Enterprise is no more. And there's a throwaway line from Cisco about, oh, I'm sure they'll be building another one. I, I, that's the only thing I don't like about modern iterations of Star Trek, like throwing up a starship takes no time whatsoever. If we go back to the original, there were only 12 Constitution-class starships, implying that serving on a Constitution-class ship was a big deal, and there was only 12 of them exploring the galaxy. By the time we get to the films and and certainly the next generation, they've got tons of ships. It still must cost to build these things. Mm. Uh, You know, that's one of the things that's always perplexed me about the sort of Gene Roddenberry view of the future, that everyone has eschewed money and uh, capitalism and that it's all done for sort of the greater good. But... Yeah, it it does cost money and resources to build these ships, and you know you've got to obviously mine materials for it, and you've got to have laborers to do this, and there's got to be OSHA space regulations and such. So <laughs> it, it, it's not just a, a cheap thing that they can do. So to the fact that you know they have these hundreds of ships, sometimes you see, like you know, we see later in the show the Klingons, especially. But you can expect the Klingons; they're a warlike race, and they're building ships to go to war. But you know, it's got to take a lot of money. So yeah, I agree there. Well, I, I kind of always was okay with the idea of they have the resources to build it if they chose to. Uh, but I, from purely from a uh, narrative or literary point of view, I was always bothered by the fact that it almost got to the point where it was okay to blow up the starship uh in star trek 3 when when the the original enterprise is destroyed or the original to our uh knowledge uh that was a big moment and it was a big moment because that stuff just didn't happen you know you you, the the ship was a character on the show you didn't kill the ship and and if you killed the ship it wouldn't be replaceable so they took a huge step there and they did replace it uh but then to make that just a, a, a less monumental event bothered me. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement with that. I think, I mean, if you read the novel to Star Trek The Motion Picture, there's an intro that is ostensibly written by James T. Kirk. And in that, I think he says he's the only commander who brought his crew and his ship back in one piece from the original 12. And in the original show, we saw three or four Constitution-class starships destroyed or lost during the course of that three years. And I, I, I much preferred that idea that there was only a finite amount of them. So saying, oh, you were just going to build an Enterprise, always just, just left me a bit cold. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Worf gets introduced to the crew. His introduction to, with Cisco is very nicely played. Chief O'Brien takes him to play darts with him and Dr. Bashir, which is a magnificent scene, how he hurls the dart at the dartboard. Just buries it in there. That's It's so it's so very Klingon. It's like, oh, you're supposed to play it this way? Well, I'm going to play it, you know, to, to the nth degree and bury it through the wall. It's brilliant. Yeah, you get the impression O'Brien and Bashir just play for fun while they're having a few pints. You don't get the idea that they've ever thought they'd have to contend with a Klingon darts player. That, that, that this is this is a way that you know we would actually be hunting or something. That's probably how Worf looks at it. Or if this is a way to you know take down a foe. How he meets Jadzia, I thought was interesting, given where those two will go mm-hmm. over the next couple of years. She's obviously flirting with him from the get-go. Well, and he's kind of you can kind of think that he's kind of flirting with her. You know, he's mentioning that you know the Dax symbiote. That's uh, that's in Jedzia, yo, know, is well known to him and is an honored uh, member of the, you know, is, is honored by the Klingons. So, you know, he's not he's showing some respect to her as well. So it's it's kind of you, you see the sort of seeds of where things are going to go between these two characters. Uh, do, do you think that was just how they played it? And then the writers saw how they sparked off each other and went that way. Or do you think there was ever any indication Worf and Jadzia were going to have a relationship? Hmm. Do you want to take that, Paul? My my thoughts, and this is just speculation, obviously. I don't have any inside knowledge on it. But my thoughts are that they kind of threw it out there that Jax was flirting with him because that was kind of true to her character just to begin with. And when they saw that there was chemistry between them and, the, and you know, Je- Jax had, had, had been, or Dax, excuse me, uh, she had been the object of everyone's... Uh, romantic overtures from the start so i think when they saw that they had chemistry between these two characters they decided that was a good place to go i don't think it was a foregone conclusion when he joined the cast that they were going to hook the two of them up though no i i think that was something the writers saw the way the actors were playing it and thought we can do something with this and i think also the relationship that the Dax symbiote or the previous iterations of Dax had with the Klingons also played into that as well. Having a, a Klingon on there would, you know, obviously give him, you know, a relationship with the Dax character. So and it, it worked on, it worked on both levels, the physical level between the two actors and you know, the sort of story elements that, you know, should have brought the characters together. Mm-hmm. Gowron offers to take Worf back. Now, where, where did he end on Next Generation? You're like, I, I don't quite remember. He got his honour back, didn't he? After yes. the whole thing with his brother and his father. And then his brother, who oddly is not seen in this episode, which would have been nice to see... Um, what was his brother's name? Oh, uh, with a K. Uh, yeah, Kern. Kern. Mm-hmm. It would have been nice to see Kern in show up. Did... 
do you think Worf essentially turning his back on the Klingon Empire again? Did you think that worked? Hmm. Yeah, I, I do. I do. I think I think it really, you know, purely again from a narrative point of view, they needed to to create this conflict. Things had just become a little too friendly with the Klingons over the years. They, you know, they went from them being the adversaries in the original series to them being allies by the time TNG ended. And I think, you know, we, we talked about this earlier about the political uh, uh, touches on the show. And I think in, in politics, uh, when you have other people, you never have a 100% totally friendly relationship. You're basically using each other for whatever you can get out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that was the way they played the Klingon relationship. Yeah, you know, on, on, on TNG, they became allies. But on this show, they showed, yeah, they're allies of convenience. They're not allies because they share a, a, a like way of looking at things. They're, they're uh, you know, their goals are, are different and that sometimes that's going to bring conflict. And if you have a race like the Klingons who are, you know, ultra aggressive like that, sometimes it's going to lead into a, a real strong conflict, which it did on this show. And I think they brought it to a nice circle in this because they conflict with each other, they fight with each other, and eventually they become allies again. And again, it's allies of convenience more than allies of of having like ways of looking at things. Yeah, it's it's also it it allows Worf to become a Deep Space Nine character. Essentially, it's it's the Marvel DC Comics thing. Stanley made Captain America a Marvel character by grafting some angst onto him because of what happened to Bucky. And essentially, what Deep Space Nine, the producers are doing here with Worf, are making him a Deep Space Nine character. Like you say, by the time you get to the seventh season of Next Gen, Worf's pretty comfortable with who he is. He's got a son. He's in the best place he's ever been in his life, as he mentions to in this this episode he thinks of the enterprise as being his home and so they had to make him a ds9 character which means giving him shades of gray which means acknowledging that yeah the political situation you're in is fluid and can change at any minute so the only thing you can really rely on is yourself and as gauron says to him you will have nothing and Worf just looks at him and says accept my honor and if you go all the way back to the Sins of the Past episode of Next Gen, that's all Worf has ever held true. His honour. So I thought it worked exceptionally well, because it's bringing him into... Of the Next Generation characters, he's arguably the only one who would have been at home in this series anyway. He's the only one who would kill somebody if that was for the greater good. You always get the impression, you know, Riker or Picard would have found a way to salvage the situation without killing somebody. Whereas Worf is quite happy to just go, oh, screw this, and stab him with a bat left. He, he thinks that's the right thing to do. And that puts him smack dab in the middle of, of DS9's viewpoint that there is no black, there is no white, there's only shades of grey in between, and how you manoeuvre yourself between the different positions is how you live your life and the only person you can be true to is your own beliefs and war fits in with that perfectly by the end of this episode brilliant no, yeah, I, I, I agree yeah yeah i like the you know that's the one thing that's made this series stand out from the other series is the sort of shades of gray that it that it uh, develops in the storylines if you're looking at the show you can kind of take either position, the position of the Federation and Cisco, that they shouldn't be attacking the Cardassians without provocation, but you can also take the position of the Klingons that this is something that is is going to be helping to defend us against the, uh, the oncoming Dominion. And you've got to kind of wonder, 
if the Klingons had actually gone through the, with this and occupied Cardassia and uh, taken out the uh, Cardassian Council, you know, would have that kept the Cardassians from uh, joining up with the Dominion later on? Uh, so it, it's it's nice that you get this sort of you're you're getting both sides and you can actually relate to them. You're not just getting this is the right thing to do and we are in the right and the other people in the wrong. You can you can take a look at either side and judge for yourself whether or not, you know, what's going on is the right thing to be is the right thing to be done. Right. That well that opens up an interesting question. Do you think then, the pair of you that perhaps Deep Space Nine wasn't as widely embraced at the time, but as is now just listening to what Sean was saying, and then so many parallels to current day society. Do you think that's perhaps why it wasn't as braced by Star Trek fandom at the time? The fact that it wasn't dealing in good and bad. It was dealing much more in a, a, a murky area. And maybe Star Trek fans weren't perhaps used to that at the time. Whereas this is, it's not dystopian. But what Ira Stephen Burr has said was his mission statement when he took over the show was, what does utopia cost? Yes, the Star Trek shows have established we live in this utopian future. Some would say naive Roddenberry version of the future. I mean, if everyone's doing everything they want to do because they want to do it, who cleans the latrines? And Deep Space Nine is the one that's saying, yeah, that's all great. But behind the scenes, stuff like this still has to happen. Mm hmm. And yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think, uh, to a large extent, you know, it presented a whole, totally different point of view than Gene Roddenberry's view of, of how life was supposed to be in the future. And I think that's why people were resistant to it. I think if they sat down and watched it and really gave it a chance, it's, it's you know, just an excellent ongoing story with deep layered characters, well acted, well written, and a lot of science fiction concepts. It's not just uh, space opera with the battles. It's it's going into concepts with the wormhole and time travel and 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 you know all sorts of uh, other things, alternate universes. Uh, you know, there's so many science fiction things that are going on that I think anyone who really gives it a legitimate chance. I'm surprised when they don't like it. I'm not saying people aren't entitled to their own opinions, but it just surprises me. It's the only one of the spin-offs that kept me engaged for the seven years. I've got to say, there were there were episodes of Next Gen that I find a chore to, to sit through and have never been back and revisited. Deep Space Nine has good and bad episodes, but as a whole, like Sean said earlier on, the, the tapestry of the whole seven years of the show really does stand up incredibly well nearly 20 odd years later well and i think i I think you know we we touched on that that the idea that it is it does have that more shades of gray it does have that more sense of reality where uh, roddenberry's idea of the future that he presented in uh, the original trek and in next gen was this utopian society and that's never really the case you're never really going to get a utopian society you know i hate to burst everyone's bubble but i don't think that's ever going to happen you're always going to have these even in the the most utopian society the most perfect society you're going to have these little undercurrents and these little negative things going on and that's why i like deep space nine because it addresses that fact it addresses that even in the star trek universe there's things that are going that are deceitful and underhanded and all that although going back to what Paul just said, we do get some fantastic battles mm-hmm. at the end of this episode. The Klingons try to take the station. There's a, a fleet of Klingon warbirds and birds of prey and whatever. Or birds of prey Romulans. I always get that mixed up. No, they, uh, they've got Klingon birds of prey. Those are the yeah. little ships that... Yeah, decloak in and, and Deep Space Nine's been armed 
they've tricked Deep Space Nine out with lots of missiles and quantum torpedoes and, and stuff like that. The Cardassians are fighting the Klingons. Garrick even ends up with a bat left at one point, which I thought was as, glorious. As does Cisco. As does Cisco, yeah. And the, the great thing for me, the battle scenes at the end, apparently a lot of the Klingon vessels were hallmark ornaments from Christmas trees. <laughs> so that they could just blow them up with impunity and not cost them, you know, an arm and a leg in destroying proper models that they would then use later on in the series. So they just went out and bought a lot of them and then just blew them up, which I thought was was really quite cool. The fight at the end, watch Jadzia. I mean, Kira takes a stab to the ribs and she says it's not that bad. Jadzia is magnificent in this fight at the end. Oh, she, she's got the bat left. She's holding her own, and it does look like Terry Farrell doing an awful lot of her own work mm-hmm. she's, in this. She's kicking. She's she's not only using the bathlet and those those disarming maneuvers and all that, but she is she's doing some great fight choreography. I mean, the they with the limited number of people they had and the limited number of sets, they gave the idea of this is an all-out station-wide you know, uh, assault. So I, I thought they did a magnificent job in setting the tone of this being a, a, an attack by a large number of Klingons and a large number of Klingon ships and Klingons on the station. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn they had maybe six Klingons in total and they just used them very, very well because that makeup stuff must cost a lot of money. Oh yeah, well and I'm certain, you know, for... For the Klingons that, you know, just get phasered or get knocked down, they didn't really have to do as elaborate a makeup effect, but, yeah, just put a, a skull cap on and a, a wig. But, yeah, still, just using the few of them that they had. And I'm certain there's people who would pay pay money to come on set and say, oh, I'll be a Klingon for a day. Sure, you shoot me with a phaser. I'm happy with that. Well, speaking of Babylon 5, on the Defiant... One of the women uh, who gets blown up earlier on is Patricia Talman, who was Lita Alexander in Babylon 5, who was also a stunt artist. She has the distinction of being in, at the end of Star Trek Generation, she's on both the bridge and in sickbay at the same time when the Enterprise crashes. She's a standard Starfleet officer on the bridge when it gets blown up, and she's doubling for Dr. Crusher in sickbay. So essentially, simultaneously, she's in two different places. I love it when you bring this random knowledge to the show, Andy. I love it. <laughs> I misspent youth reading stuff that I should have been reading important stuff, and I was reading Cinema Fantastique magazine. Now, you have to accept that the Bajorans have a different physiology than humans in order to accept that Kira got that knife to the ribs and it was, you know, no big deal. Because have you ever <laughs> seen a uh, Klingon blade? Oh, God, yes. There is no way that you're putting that in anyone's ribs without without, at a minimum, lacerating a significant and major organ. Mm-hmm. And it came in on her, I'm trying to think on human anatomy, it came in on her right side, so it's not hitting the liver, but it's probably going to hit near the kidneys, it's going to rupture some intestines, you know, and it, it, pulling it out, there's going to be, you know, just, oh, it, yeah. yeah it always, the anatomy it, different. It always I can believe it was a pairing TV when they do that. When the, the, these people who should know better, who are trained warriors or soldiers, pull the knife out 
when they've just been wounded in it. Aren't you supposed to leave that there because it can do more damage coming out mm-hmm. than going in? Exactly. And they, yeah. and they always do it. They do it in this. She just pulls the knife out and goes, oh, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, you may have been fine if you'd snapped it off and left the tip in see, and Dr. Bajir could have got to you. Now you're going to bleed out and die. Mm-hmm. And see, you know, the the thing that I hate is when they get stabbed like in the in the arm or the chest and then they pull it out and like, oh, I'll be fine. No, you've just you've just perforated your lung you're gonna start you know fluid leaking into there and you're gonna lose the ability to breathe so oh no it just that annoys me end of the episode it's nice seeing um a galaxy class starship docking mm-hmm. at deep space nine again again my understanding when next gen started wasn't there only a couple of galaxy class starships mm-hmm. i think the enterprise was was one of the you know it was supposed to be the uh the head of the fleet it was, it was the first the... one and wasn't there only supposed to be two or three mm-hmm uh, as far serves, as, as, far as I remember. We see get destroyed in Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. We well, see a galaxy class get destroyed at the end of Season 2, was it? I'm trying to remember. That might be. I know we'll see galaxy class get blown up quite a bit, you know, once the Dominion War starts, starts up, but I'm trying to remember what episode that was. It's we- been so long. Yeah, it was Thingio. The captain of it was Rudy Wells from Six Million Dollar Man, because we had a good laugh. Dr. Rudy Wells is going to start. Oh, yes, we did. Oh, my God. Uh, The the episode basically comes to a point. Nothing is really resolved because, obviously, I don't want to call it a re-pilot because I think you need to have had some knowledge of Deep Space Nine before watching this episode to come into it here. But it's certainly a reformatting of what the show is going to be about from now on. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be. It's not going to be station oriented. It's not going to be people coming to Deep Space Nine. It's going to be them doing a bit more exploring and them doing a bit more, a bit more hands on. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the show goes from here. Yeah, and just thinking about that now, it, it's almost as if they took a step away from the Roddenberry paradigm with the conflict and all of that, but they also took a step more towards it by making it less stationary with the uh, station and, and giving them the ability to explore. Yeah, um, Worf goes back into wearing red, which he's not done since the early days of Next Generation. And Chief O'Brien actually has a line of dialogue, you look good in red. And I wanted Worf to say, it has been a while, but he doesn't. He just goes, Ugh, like Worf does, because he, he's, <laughs> he's a very taciturn man, is Worf. And uh, he takes his position as um, a tops. He's not the security guard, so Ordo doesn't need to feel threatened. I kind of wanted them to bring Alexander on to make him have a relationship with Jake Sisko. I do think Ben's relationship with his son is one of, if not the, best father-son relationship I've seen on a television show in a long time. Deep Space Nine did a really good job of, of extrapolating Jake growing up not wanting to be a Starfleet officer and Cisco never pushes him in that direction Jake's not in this episode it would have been nice to see Alexander play around with maybe not play with Jake but you know what I mean <laughs> but Alexander just kind of gets shuffled off a little bit from this point onwards it's like the DC, Deep Space Nine writers didn't want to deal with Alexander the picture that we see in this episode is not the actor that played him in Next Gen really? it didn't look like him well, the actor from Next Gen was the same actor that pay- played the uh, the the young new addition on uh, Family Ties, Brian Bonsale or something. I don't know how it's pronounced. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, uh, that's him. And and uh, I I always thought Alexander was a mis 
written character. I don't think they really knew what to do with him, even when he, they did finally bring him onto DS9. Yeah, it, it, they kind of struggled a bit. The, the whole point of the Galaxy-class starships was they were family ships, and yet at the first available opportunity, Worf packs his son off to live with his parents. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have made a nice addition to have uh, Alexander and uh, Jake, you know, get together. You know, I think it probably would work better than oh, what's his name, Rom's Nog. Nog, yeah. I think I think that that would have been that would have been a nice pairing. And and it, well, it was interesting that you know they had Nog uh, forsake his cultural backgrounds and become basically a soldier. Uh, it would have been interesting to see Alexander growing into his cultural backgrounds and becoming a soldier. Mm. Yeah, it, well, I think they missed a beat bringing Alexander there, but I, I just think they just couldn't be bothered. To, to yeah, be honest, I, I think they had all the storylines they wanted to hit, and they didn't really want to go with him. They no. eventually killed Alexander off, didn't they? Do you know I don't remember that? Huh? Maybe we'll get to that later. I, I don't yeah, remember. No, there's plenty more Alexander. episodes to go to. Yeah. So, what what do we think of Way of the Warrior? Uh, this is the this is the best of both worlds for Deep Space Nine. This is uh, not saying that there are episodes that aren't better than this, but this is the one that if you want to, if you basically want to show an episode to a person who hasn't seen Star Trek, and you want to show them Deep Space Nine episode, this is the one you show them because there's just everything in here. There's action. There's intrigue. There's great character moments. There's it, it's it's just a perfect episode perfect paul i i don't know if i'd go as far as perfect uh i think i might use near perfect and it's not because i'm pointing to any weakness in the episode i don't have any specific examples of oh this is where it failed i just uh i always like to leave room for uh well if, if there's one i like more uh no so so i'm you know if i was giving it a on a scale of one to ten i'm probably giving it a nine uh, yeah, for me, it's it's not my favourite episode. It's a very enjoyable one. It doesn't drag over its 93-minute running time, which is nice. Double episodes are normally a little bit padded. This one didn't feel padded at all. It felt like it was reformatting the show, introducing a new character, and it does it all exceptionally well in a relatively short amount of time. My favourites tend to be the episodes like Far Beyond the Stars, the ones that are pure science fiction parables. But this was great. I, I give this a solid 8 out of 10. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Cool. Well, do we want to go ahead and take a little break here? Are we finished talking about the episode? Yeah, we can We can plug somebody's show with some kind of trailer, I'm sure. Okay, yeah, we'll plug a trailer in here and then... Uh... I guess this time out, I've got to uh, cover the Deep Space Nine comic, so we'll get to that after this. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics. And the video games, too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them. Okay, Star Wars fans, relax. Here, 
have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for the Star Wars SagaCast at thestarwarssagacast.com. Tangent, an abrupt change of course. Tangent, to go off suddenly in another direction or on a different line of thought. Tangent, a comic event featuring brand new characters with very familiar names. I'm waking up to ash and dust. I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust. I'm breathing in the chemicals. Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Find it bi-weekly on iTunes and at greatcrypton.com. In the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. All right, and we are back. And this time out, I'm going to be taking a look at a Star Trek Deep Space Nine comic. This one is uh, number 14. Ready for this one, guys? Yeah, go on. Okay. <laughs> this one... <laughs> This one had a cover date of February 1999 and was released on November 12th, 1997. Mike's Amazing World of, I guess, Marvel Comics gives us that information. $1.99 US was the cover price. Uh, the title was Nobody Knows the Tribbles I've Seen. Wah, 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 wah. See, it's a pun. Get it? now. The writer was Andy Mangles. The penciler was Terry Pallet. Inker was Al Milgram. Letterer Chris Eliopoulos. The colorist was Matt Webb. Chip Carter was the triple. Tim Tuhoy was no triple, and Bob Harris was big triple. After the normal previously on Star Trek Deep Space Nine opener, we the readers are treated to a view of Commander Worf preparing to take an angry, violent shit in the middle of the promenade, <laughs> while Fork and the inhabitants of Deep Space Nine look on in horror. Luckily, the scene is cut away from, as it is actually a tale of how Worf reacted to the presence of a herd or a gaggle, a murder. Just what do you call a group of triples, anyway? A troop. A troop of triples. 
Anyhow, it is Quark relating how Worf reacted to Triple showing up on DS9, which predominantly involves massacre by phaser rifle. Constable Odo and the rest of the assembled ops team, including Bashir, Dax, O'Brien, and bar patron Morn, feel that the story might be a bit embellished, especially since Odo would have brought the smackdown if anyone just discharged a phaser on his watch. Quark steers at the crew's disbelief and heads off to take care of customers who will listen to an insane ramblings. As the Ferengi leaves, O'Brien asks Dax why Worf hasn't showed up for this beat-up, and Dax mentions that he might be a little worn out due to their sparring. Yes, that's what they're calling it. Sparring. Wink. Oh, and also because Quark's reeks of the smell of tribbles. O'Brien pipes up that Quark's story did have a hint of truth, at least about Worf having a distinct hatred of tribbles. He then regales the crew with a true tale of why Klingons loathe the little fuzzballs. You see, generations ago, the Klingons were a happy-go-lucky race that kept the tribbles as pets. But when the Romulans openly mocked them for their perceived weakness, the Klingons decided to forego their docile ways and began warring against the Romulans. This also led to the Klingons attempting to eliminate the pets that led to their perception of weakness, going so far as to raise the triple homeworld. Odo calls bullshit on that tale, saying that Worf cited the triple's proclivity for rapid breeding as the reason they wiped out the planet, but O'Brien retorts with the claim that the near-immediate birth rate didn't begin until after most of the triples were obliterated in the Klingon siege. Dr. Bashir pipes up and says he has a better explanation for the Klingon hatred of triples, and it relates to the difference between the Klingons that the crew encountered while traveling back in time to Station K-7. Prior to the late 23rd century, no member of the Federation had encountered a Klingon with the pronounced forehead ridges. In fact, all of them looked predominantly like humans. But after the triples from the USS Enterprise were beamed aboard the IKS Goroth, the Klingons developed a mild skin irritation that eventually led to their cradial ridges. Koloth assumed that Kirk had tested a biological weapon on the Klingons via the Tribbles, but because they didn't want to be perceived as weak, they never confronted Kirk or the Federation about it. Plus, the ridges made them look even more badass. At this time, Dax pipes up and the sides re reveal the honest, completely true truth about the Klingon hatred of Tribbles, because in one of her previous hosts of the Dax symbiote, she was privy to that information. Around three centuries ago, Dax was a treasure hunter named Indiana Crocodile Dax. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I mean, and Jana Dax. And he met up with three Klingon treasure hunters named... Ko, Lere, and Shep. <laughs> yes, you heard me right. Ko, Lere, and Shep Klingons. Star Trek. Yuck, yuck. <laughs> Anywho, the Quartet set out to steal the Batleth of Molor, a weapon wielded by a tyrant who was slayed by Kalos himself, from the Imperial Palace. And how do you think they were able to make their way undiscovered into the Imperial Palace? <laughs> of course, by way of a Trojan Tribble. Claiming that the Klingons actually did keep Tribbles as pets at once, Dax says the Emperor was incredibly pleased by the arrival of a giant one and especially pleased by its calming trilling noise, which calmed the palace so much as to put all of them to sleep. This allowed Dax and the Klingon Stooges to steal the Batleth, but something went wrong and the giant triples started shrieking and split into hundreds of carnivorous little triples, for whatever reason. With the jig being up, Dax and the Klingons make a hasty retreat, minus the treasure, but with their own lives. Now O'Brien calls Dax out on her account of the Klingon hatred of triples, but before more, any more tales can be told, Worf finally meets up with the rest of the command crew. 
The Klingon commander notices the sudden change in demeanor, but after having a rough day of sparring, yes, sparring in the hollow suites, sparring with Dax, wink, <laughs> he isn't interested in anything but a good meal. Unfortunately, he gets cold Klingon Ga prepared by Quark, something that he really isn't in the mood for. Worf quickly departs, which leaves Odo to declare the meeting of the Liars Club closed. Dax wonders about the constable's skepticism, and Odo says it's nothing of the sort. In fact, he knows that Morn knows the real story behind the Klingon hatred of Tribbles, and he's going to relate it now. The end. Ah, Deep Space Nine comics. So, gentlemen, <laughs> what do we say? What do we have to say about this this wonderful piece of uh, comic reading material? I, I don't think it's as bad as you're making it out to be. Well, I, I'm not saying that it's bad, but it does have just some goofy elements. I mean, the the one thing I do like about the comic is the fact that Paramount was behind it. They were able to get the likenesses of all the characters down. All the characters look perfectly like the characters on the show, so I have no problem with the art on that. Uh, when it gets to the art on the people that aren't characters on the show, that's when it gets a bit off. What about you, Paul? Or, uh, go ahead, Andy. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, why don't you finish your point? Cause you started this no, I was, I was just going to say it's, it's whimsical. In perhaps a way that Deep Space Nine wasn't often whimsical but it is a semi-sequel to trials and tribulations which we've not got to yet but that's a very whimsical episode and it's played for laughs and it's obviously poking fun at itself and in that regard i thought it it worked quite well would i have liked to have seen this as an episode probably not but the art's nice and it, it i i I wasn't bored reading it, and I wasn't cursing you for making me read it. <laughs> well, that's that's always good, because I know previous issues that we've had, <laughs> you were like, why did you make me synopsis? Why have this? you done this to me? What have I done <laughs> to you in a previous life that Obviously, you would inflict this on me? It's amazing that we've kept together for this amount of time, because <laughs> some, of those, some of those comics were just, oh. But yeah, I, I didn't mind it. Paul, what do you think? Well, I curse you less than I curse the writers of the story. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I read it and I'm thankful that it's not canon because it's just too, a little too silly for that. I think the story might have read better if it was some children in the space station uh, relaying their stories as to why they thought that the Tribbles were so disliked by the Klingons, and this way it, it actually would be more true to the series, because these characters would not tell these stupid stories. They really just wouldn't. So that, that's where it kind of falls flat on, on my end. Uh, the artwork, I always have a problem with, uh, not always, very often have a problem with uh, licensed characters in comics, because even when they're drawn to the point where they look like the character, then they're usually drawn stiff and stilted, and it just doesn't doesn't flow the way I like it to, uh, and and there's nothing you can do about it because if you make them not look like the characters, then that takes you out of it just as quickly. So it, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Uh, but I, I mean, overall, I thought the art was okay. You know, Al Milgram is a uh, workman-like inker, so you know you don't expect a whole lot with that. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a read it, 
giggle to yourself and then throw, put it down and never read it again kind of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can go with that. You know, I didn't have, you know, I kind of was snarky in my synopsis of it, but you know, it was a decent read. The, there, I, I agree. There are some things in continuity that you know obviously aren't going to be canonical. The whole idea that Scotty being over the tribbles to the uh, to the co-author or to uh, the Ica- the Klingon ship in uh, trouble with tribbles is the uh, reason that the Klingons got their forehead ridges is is really suspect and not even you know, I know in Enterprise they addressed the idea why the, the idea behind the forehead ridges was uh, completely different uh, from what we get here so uh, eventually hopefully we'll get to talk about that sometime yeah I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to go too far into the future but in Trials and Tribulations, when they uh, go back in time and they're looking at the Klingons of the original series, and, and I don't even recall which character it is, but one of the cast says Klingons and looks over at Worf, and Worf just kind of shakes his head and says, we don't like to talk about it. I thought that was all they had to do. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think they ever had to give an actual explanation for it, although I don't think they did a bad job on Enterprise of trying to explain it away. I don't think they needed to explain it away. I think... That, that all they have to do is acknowledge, yeah, we, we know there's a difference there, and there is a reason for it, but you don't need to know because it's really not important because really all it comes down to is the makeup techniques of the time. Yeah, I agree. I like the cover. I thought the cover was a nice sort of riff on that uh, National Lampoon's magazine cover where the guy's holding the gun to the dog's head, uh, if anyone remembers that. Yes, I Oh, I, yeah, bye, they saw the cat gets it or something. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of amusing. And yes, unfortunately, you know, I'm sorry. The opening panel with Worf with Klingon with a with the phaser rifle. Yeah, to yeah, try and get the idea of him not just straining to pinch out a loaf there. Just uh, <laughs> did, did he steal his did, did he steal his uh, phaser rifle from Cable? Because <laughs> it's huge. Yeah, I was gonna say that is pretty big. Of course, the, you know, the, when was this published? Again? Let me pull this up. Uh, was this published in the nineties? I yeah, 1998. 98. Well, it's a little past, you know, the image, you know, boom. But yeah, it's still 90s stuff. So we could probably, do, you know, they're playing cable catch up. There you go. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it to an extent. There were some really campy moments. The, yeah, the Klingons in Maybury uh, was exceptionally <laughs> funny. And the and the 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 Trojan Tribble. Now. Okay, let me ask you this. Was it a fake Tribble that they were hiding inside of, or was it a live giant Tribble that, you know, they had gutted and were walking in there and suddenly exploded little, little Tribbles? Because that made no sense to me. I just, it made no sense, and yet I think that's what they were saying. Okay, well, that, that completely... Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a tall tale, so I guess it's not supposed to make sense. Well, also cannibalistic tribbles is not uh, not true to what we know about tribbles. True. Or that Dax was Indiana Jones in a past life. <laughs> Although that's that's the one story, except for the Three Stooges aspect of it. That's the one story that you could see Dax telling twelve tales. She's the one character who's at the table sitting there telling this story that you could believe she would tell a not necessarily total out and out lie, but a. A, an extreme exaggeration of what her real experience was. Yeah, kind of give a little embellishment to one of her uh, previous uh, Dax symbiote iterations. Yeah, I could buy that. Yeah, it was it was alright. I mean, like you said, the art's okay, apart from Julian. 
who never looks like Alexander Siddig at all throughout the entire comic. He doesn't do badly with Jad Zia and Chief O'Brien, and obviously Quark and Odo just seem like the the heavily photo referenced. But Doctor Bashir looks terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Worf looks actually pretty good. But yeah, I I do agree with what you said earlier, Paul, that when they do have the license to these characters' actual faces, the the poses of them often look very stiff, which is disappointing. Because, but you know, the thing is, they're just sitting around a table bullshitting, so they're mm-hmm. really not out, you know, having any action scenes or doing much of anything aside from sitting around. So, yeah. there you go, I guess. It's just, you know, it's a personal bias, but every time I see a heavily photo-referenced licensed character book, it brings me back to poorly done versions of Charlton comics from back in, like, the, uh, you know, the early 70s. Uh, and, 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 you know, I have a built-in prejudice against that. Understandable. <laughs> well, hopefully next time we'll get some. You know, okay, I might as well ask, you know, what do you think about the ending with Morn? Do you think that's just a... Did that amuse you in any way? And we really didn't touch that much on Morn. I mean, he was a little bit in the show. He showed up a little bit in the show. But, you know, do, do you guys really care about the Morn character? Is he just basically there as sort of you know, just window dressing for the show? I'm sorry, i got to that... interrupt you for a second. I need to answer the door. Okay. Okay. I'll be right. right back. No problem. Uh, I I like Morn as a background character, and I liked the running gag that he doesn't speak. I thought that was quite entertaining. He would like, yeah, in Way of the Warrior, he's he's just kind of there, isn't he? He doesn't mm-hmm. like. He gets beaten up by the Klingons just to show that the Klingons are badasses. Because the way you show the Klingons are badasses is by beating up Morn. Mm-hmm. Well, well beating up than... Morn and Garrick, unfortunately. But yeah. You know, well, Garrett, you can kind of get behind them beating up because you can understand how he would rub people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But Morn, yeah, no, Morn's just harmless. I didn't mind Morn. He's he's a humorous background character. He, he doesn't really serve. It. There's never a story about him, is there? Well, I think I there is. I think there is later on. That's a sort of sort of ancillary story where Court gets left uh, Morn's inheritance. Oh yeah, who mourns for Morn? Yes, and yeah, uh, season seven, that I think, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, uh, I, I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, the, supposedly Morn dies and Quark gets in his inheritance, and you know, we'll we'll get to that eventually. Yeah, yeah, but no, uh, this this was okay. It, I don't really have a lot to say other than I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was it was all right. Yeah, it was it was a it was an issue. So yeah. <laughs> Yes, it was a comic. It was printed on paper. <laughs> okay, yeah, I always liked the character of Morn, and I don't know. I, you know, I walked away for a second. I apologize, but I don't know if you guys hit on the fact that he's essentially Norm from Cheers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he's always sitting at the bar, heavy set guy, and you know, that that he's he's always there and he's always comic relief, which I always got a kick out of when he's on it. And I guess that's exactly how he's used in this issue as comic relief. And uh, I. Unlike other situations where I could feel it was forced, I always kind of appreciated him as comic relief. Yeah, because that's, that's really well. there, there was there was definitely some forced attempt at comic relief in here with the Klingon stooges and the, the less said about that. But yeah, like I said, it was an issue. <laughs> that's the best that's... thing you can say about it. I think it's a fair assessment of it. 
But like I, I think what I said earlier is pretty much my take on it. That yeah, you could read it. It's not terrible. It's entertaining in its own way. But once you put it down, you know, you're kind of done with it. Exactly. All right then. So next time on an all new episode of Listen to the Prophets, one of the all time best episodes, not only of Deep Space Nine, but generally considered to be one of the best Star Trek episodes ever. Tony Todd, Candyman guest stars as the visitor we hope you will join us thank you very much you two can say bye Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. Dumbass. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show... Please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this. Do you want me to bring it straight in then, or do you two need a minute? I'm good. I'm good. Just muted for coughing. Sorry. Go. (laughs) You're just muted to be put in a coffin. Well, the, that's that's later because, you know, I have to return to the Earth. Otherwise, you know, I shrivel up and die. <laughs> Exposure to sunlight kills yeah, you, does exactly. it? Exactly.